Today we're going to look at John chapter 19. And we're returning again to Jesus' famous, infamous, really, trial before Pontius Pilate. And today we're going to find out what this waffling, indecisive Roman governor is going to do with this guy, Jesus. Is Pilate going to do the right thing? The courageous thing? And release this innocent man, or is he going to kowtow to the evil demands of those who want to put Jesus to death. By the way, in our passage today, we're looking today at John 19 verses one through 16. And in this passage, for the first time, John mentions the manner of Christ's death. It's first stated in John 19 verse six. You can see this. John writes, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, saw Jesus, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And those are powerful, hateful words. The prospect of crucifixion was a, was a horrible and ghastly thing. For people to cry out in such a bloodthirsty and wicked way is, is really abominable. But it's not surprising. They've been after Jesus for some time, and, and, and now they have their moment of satisfaction. Now they have their moment to get Jesus executed, and they're going to take advantage of it. I think it's easy for us, especially as we look at John 19 today, to fixate on what happens here and shudder at the horror of the crucifixion. And, and that's because it's a, it's a gruesome act of execution. But I want you to consider this. You can read this on this screen. There's a little known Puritan preacher named John Wall. So little known, I, I couldn't find a picture of him to put up here on the screen with this quote. But John Wall wrote a book in the 1600s called none but Christ, none but Christ. And Wall puts Jesus's death into perspective by saying this, all of Jesus's life was a crucifixion from the cradle to the grave, from his birth to his burial. All of his life was a crucifixion. Now, why does Wall say that? What's he getting at? Well, because Jesus' whole life was an exercise in sacrifice and humiliation. Wall Wall goes on to give 12 examples of this. I won't talk through all of that, but just some examples that he points out. Christ's conception, Christ's birth, Christ's infancy, the times of his temptation leading all the way up until his death. Christ's entire life was filled with suffering and with humiliation. And this is evident even in Peter's words in 1 Peter. I've been trying to revisit 1 Peter 5 and memorize it because it's got those great statements about elder and elder leadership. And Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. You might say, Peter, how were you a witness, man? You ran away before the Good Friday thing happened. How can you be a witness to it? Well, the answer is that Christ's suffering involved more than just what happened on Good Friday. His whole life involved suffering. And just think about this. This is something that I typically would preach at uh, Christmas time as opposed to Easter time. I usually point out that, you know, Jesus' infancy, what, I mean, how did he come into this world? He wasn't born in a palace. The first place that he was laid was a feed trough for animals. He was born into a stable, the home of animals. The creator and sustainer of life, the eternal son of God, was confined to his stable. Think about that for a second. 
And not just to a stable, but to, you know, to hours and days and years. He entered into time itself. The one who created and spoke everything into existence could not speak or form words as an infant. He could only cry and nurse. The one who created and feeds all living things needed to be fed with his mother's milk. The one who made the earth to tremble with his glory and majesty and power rested gently in Mary's human arms. His first garment being swaddling rags of clothing. And Wall writes this. Yet all this was for our exaltation. Christ was clothed with clothes and rags so that we might be clothed with robes of glory. Praise the Lord. You've heard the term passion before. Are you all familiar with that term, passion? Passion of the Christ. Passion is an old English word that means suffering. It's based upon the Latin passio, which means suffering. And, you know, we talk about passion week, this week between, uh, you know, Sundays, the Sunday, Palm Sunday, and then Easter Sunday. That's passion week. And Good Friday is that moment of Jesus' greatest suffering. But Jesus' whole life was a passion He suffered 33 years as God in human form. And that's what makes uh, Pilate's statement here in John 19, verse 5. That's what makes this so dramatic and ironic. Pilate says, behold the man. Ecce homo in Latin. Behold the man. Yeah, Jesus is a man. But he's so much more than that. He's so much more than that. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's start from the beginning. Go ahead and write this down as number one in your notes. Our message today is entitled, Behold the Man. And I want to give you three statements about Jesus' identity in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his passion. And the first is this, Jesus suffered as a human being. Jesus actually suffered as fully human. And you might say, well, of course, of course we know that, Pastor Tony. We've seen the passion of the Christ. We know his suffering was real. Yeah, well, not everybody has agreed with that throughout church history. Some people have denied the full humanity of Jesus. Some people, especially in the first and second century AD, denied uh, this. They, They couldn't wrap their minds around a God who would enter space as a human and suffer Those who denied these things in the first and second century were called Gnostics or proto-Gnostics. And John dealt with them head on. John in his epistle, he said this, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus confessed this about Jesus, that he came in the flesh is not from God. John says that the denial of this fact that Jesus was truly human, that he came in the flesh, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. So John's not messing around here with this. God was in the flesh. Jesus was God in the flesh, is God in the flesh. And Jesus suffered as a human being. For the last few weeks, we've already seen aspects of Jesus's humanity in the midst of suffering. He was beaten. He was bound by temple authorities. He's been arrested. He's been interrogated. He's been humiliated already before Annas, before Caiaphas, first by the Jew or higher ups, now by the most powerful man in Israel. Pontius Pilate, and now the the intensity of this suffering is going to ramp up as Jewish leaders, we saw this at the end of last week's passage, Jewish leaders and the Jewish people chose Barabbas 
over the innocent Jesus. Barabbas, his name in Aramaic, remember, means a son of the father. They chose a son of the father over the son of God, the father. And now they're trying to strong arm Pilate into getting Jesus executed. So here's what happens. Pilate, he's indecisive. He didn't know what to do. He thinks Jesus is innocent. Doesn't want to execute an innocent man. He's got some amount of conscience scruples. So he's like, Hey, I'll throw you a bone. He can't let this rebellion that's starting turn into a full-blown revolt. So he appeases these bloodthirsty Jewish leaders. And he actually does the unthinkable. He orders Jesus to be flogged. Look at verse 1, chapter 19. Then Jesus took, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. He flogged him. Why would he do that? An innocent man. Someone he thought even had no guilt. Why would he do that? Well, he's trying to pacify them. Maybe he thinks he's doing Jesus a favor too. Hey, I'll have you whipped, okay? And that's better than being executed. I'm doing you a favor. And, and you need to know the incredible pressure that Pilate felt at this moment. I told you last week that the Jews had come all the way to Caesarea to the place where Pilate's main headquarters were and hounded him about removing those idols of the, of the soldiers when they came into Jerusalem. You know, they had those, those busts of Caesar on their poles and they hounded and hounded and hounded Pilate until he eventually acquiesced to their dema- demands. Well, that wasn't the only time that Pilate had a run in with the Jews. There was another incident where Pilate determined that the water supply in Jerusalem was inadequate. So Pilate, he actually robbed the temple in Jerusalem to help pay for this aqueduct project to bring water into the city. Well, you know, the Jews understandably were unhappy about that, having their temple robbed. And so they started a riot in the streets and the soldiers, Roman soldiers after this riot came in and they clubbed and they stabbed several Jews to death because of this. And you know, that didn't exactly engender Peter or uh, Pilate to the people after something like that. And so word got back about that incident to Rome that Pilate was botching his assignment in Judea. So he was under a lot of pressure. Later, there was another incident. Once when Pilate was in Jerusalem, he made shields out of these, these, uh, out of metal and he inscribed on them the name Tiberius, Emperor Tiberius, and said that he was a god. And I mean, this was his attempt to, to brown nose the emperor, so to speak. And again, the Jews protested. They didn't want shields declaring that Tiberius was a God in Jerusalem. Well, Pilate refused to remove these shields. And so the, the Jews, instead of starting a riot, they, they, they got wise to the, the heat that Pilate was under. And so they sent a group of people to Rome, emissaries to complain about this guy, Pilate. They sent emissary, an emissary to Tiberius. They complained about Pilate. And the, the emperor actually sent an emissary back to Pilate, and he said, remove those shields. Stop causing trouble in Jerusalem. And so Pilate, again, was humiliated. And now he's even in more hot water with the higher-ups in Rome. That's why there's such, there's such tension between the Jews and Pilate in this scene, in Jesus' trial. That's why Pilate was willing to go to such extremes to punish who he thought was a guiltless man. So... In order to appease the Jews, now you got that historical background locked away inside of your mind, right? You got it? Do you got it now? Do you now? All right. Now we come to verse one. 
And we see why Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And in this day, there were, there were three different kinds of flogging that the Romans would do. There was a mild form of flogging called the fustigatio. There was also a severe form called the flagellatio. And there, there was also an extremely severe form called the verberatio. And people would sometimes even die from the verberatio. You know, people, Mel Gibson, he took a lot of heat for the passion of the Christ because they thought it was too extreme what he did with the, with the flogging of Jesus. No, I, I think he got it right. In fact, that most severe form was so severe that sometimes people would die. They would take the, the whip with the, the thongs and pieces of bone and metal would be put inside of the whip. And every time they would thrash, they would pull back and rip skin out of the person that was being flogged. Sometimes people would die. Sometimes the, the beatings were so severe, the whippings were so severe that they would, body parts, organs inside of a person would be exposed after their flogging. And it's quite possible that Jesus received two different floggings. First, a less severe form before he was sentenced, and then a second, more severe form just before he was crucified. Criminals were flogged mercilessly before they got crucified. And it it was, in a sense, a way to speed up the death process because they didn't want someone hanging on the cross for days and days. So they they beat them, they whipped them within an inch of their life so that they would die quicker. And we know that was the case that, that Jesus, the strong carpenter, this capable man, he couldn't even carry his cross. He was so weak, he died. They didn't even have to break his bones on the cross because he was, he was so done after all the beatings, the whippings, the scourgings that he took before he got to the cross. In addition to the flogging, verse 2 states this, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on Jesus' head and they arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. This is more than just adding insults to injury. This was injury and insult simultaneously. If what they were using here was a, a date palm, the, cra- the uh, thorns on a date palm were somewhere around 8 to 12 inches long. So they crafted a crown of thorns, pressed it on Jesus' head. That would have been exceedingly painful, something like that. There's irony even in that because if it was date palm thorns that they were using, Jesus came to Jerusalem while they were using the, the, the palm tree branches of a date palm. Now they're using the date tree for something else. I don't doubt the brutality of these soldiers either. I can imagine bored, bloodthirsty soldiers who saw this as an opportunity to pummel a Jew, the people that they hated. In fact, in this time, there were, there were Jewish assassins that would circulate in Judea and Jerusalem. They were called Sicarii. And one of the things that the Sicarii would do is they would go around looking for soldiers and they would stab them from behind. So you can imagine a, a group full of soldiers who knew someone like this, maybe some, something like this had actually happened to someone in their battalion. 
they couldn't wait for an opportunity like this to humiliate a Jew. And think too, I mean, here they are in this outpost, this place that wasn't fun to be, this place where there was constant hostility towards him. And actually, it's a marvel that we see a guy like Cornelius get saved in the book of Acts, a centurion, and, and Jesus healing uh, another centurion's daughter. It, it's amazing to think that these are the people that were so hated. These are the people that would take an opportunity like this against Jesus to vent their rage for being assigned to duty in Israel. And so that's what they did. They took out their rage on Jesus. Jews and Gentiles both punishing, persecuting, causing suffering upon Jesus. So here's what Pilate does after this. Look at verse four. Jesus has been punished, right? Jesus, I did you a favor, says Pilate. So Pilate went out again to them. They won't come inside. He's got to go out to them. See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Seriously? You find no guilt in him? Why would you do that to him? He did it to appease them. I find no guilt in him, but look how I made him suffer just for you. And then Pilate says to them, Jesus, here's Jesus coming out, wearing the crown of thorns, purple robe. By this point, Jesus' appearance would have been absolutely heartbreaking. He would have been a bloody, swollen mess of flesh. And Pilate cynically and sarcastically says, Eki homo, behold the man. As if to say, you're worried about this guy? Look at him. This, this is the guy you're so worried about that would cause all kinds of problems? He's barely alive. So now it's time to be done. He's not a threat to you. There's nothing to worry about. He's just a pathetic man. Behold the man. Now here's the irony in Pilate's statement, and I hope you feel the irony. I hope you feel, even as John is communicating this to us, the greatness of that statement that Pilate does not understand. Because how did John open up his gospel? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word, what? He took on flesh and he lived among us. He became one of us, John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yes, Jesus is a man. This is marvel. God in the flesh. And Pilate is oblivious to just how amazing a statement that is. As he utters, behold the man. Here's how D.A. Carson says it. You can read this on the screen. He says, here indeed is the man, the word made flesh. All the witnesses were too blind to see it at the time, but this man was displaying his glory, the glory of the one and only son. And the very disgrace, pain, weakness, and brutalization that Pilate advances as suitable evidence that he was a judicial irrelevance. By the way, I said this a few weeks ago, Jesus' greatest strength here is being demonstrated in his weakness. Jesus' Great power and self-discipline is being displayed and his willingness to be tortured and humiliated. Remember what we looked at a few weeks back? He came to arrest Jesus. Jesus gives him a little glimpse of his glory. He says, I am, and they all fall down. He could do that now. He could call down the the, the angels to wipe out everybody. 
And it takes incredible strength to put your strength away and willingly suffer. Tim Keller illustrates it this way. When he was uh, younger, he would wrestle with his boys when they were kids, and he's like 6'4", 200 pounds. And, you know, he was trying to strengthen them up by wrestling with them. And if he wanted to, 6'4", 200 pounds, these little boys, he could crush them. But, of course, that wasn't his intent. It, it, takes, it takes incredible discipline to be weak in that moment in order to give of your strength to somebody else. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus said, I am in the garden, and he blasted everybody to the ground. He could do that. But right here, Jesus needed to be weak in order for us to have strength. He needed to set aside his life in order to give us life. Behold the man, Harvesticator, the man Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows who takes away the sin of the world, Believe in him. Worship him. Be thankful to this man who willingly suffered for your sin. And trust him for your salvation because there's salvation found in no one else other than him. So Jesus suffered as a human being. Go ahead and write this down as number two. Jesus also suffered as a son of God. Jesus suffered as fully human. Jesus suffered as fully God. Let me just talk doctrine for a second. Can I do that, Harvest Decatur? Would that be all right? Uh, just a little doctrine. Jesus says God and Jesus as man is, is, we believe that here at Harvest. It's called the hypostatic union. Jesus is fully man. Jesus is fully God. He's fully man in the sense that he really did take on human flesh and live among us. He wasn't a phantom being. He didn't appear to suffer. He didn't kind of float down, pretend to suffer, and then float back up to eternity. And so, and by the way, that in no ways, in no ways compromised his deity at any time. And this is Orthodox Christianity, folks. This is what Christians have believed for 2,000 years about Jesus. And why is this important? Here's why it's important. Because when cults form or when heresy arises, and this has been happening for 2,000 years, they usually attack one aspect or the other of Jesus' identity, either his, his humanity or his deity. At first, in the first few centuries, it was his humanity that got attacked. More lately, it's been his deity that gets attacked. So we at Harvest Decatur, we affirm Jesus' full deity, Jesus' full humanity. Everybody with me? If you want more on that, you can look up our doctrinal statement online. Let's get back to the text here. So here's what happens next. Pilate presents Jesus, this man, to the Jewish leaders. And Jesus, Jesus is a sorry sight at this point. He's been whipped. He's been bloodied. He is mockingly placed in fake kingly garments and a fake king's crown. And it's clear what Pilate's intent is here. He thinks, thinks he's, he's done his part. He th he th you know, look, this guy's not a threat to you. Can we be done now? Can we be done with this sham of a trial? And if Pilate, if that's what he wanted from the Jewish leaders, to appease them by, by 
humiliating and bloodying Jesus in this way, he was sorely mistaken. Because they aren't satisfied. Look at verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, saw Jesus, in this sorry state, barely alive, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, and this is sarcastic too, take him yourself and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. Pilate knows they can't crucify him without his permission. So, you know, this, this is sarcastic. The Jews answered him, verse 7, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. So now, now here for the first time, we get a real accusation in the gospel of John. He made himself out to be God. They said he made himself out to be the son of God. He's guilty of blasphemy. And according to Leviticus 24, 16, you can read this on the screen that, I mean, that was punishable by death. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The entire, the entire assembly must stone him. They dismissed that part about stoning the blasphemer because the Jews don't want Jesus stoned to death. They want him crucified. They want him put upon a tree, hanged upon a tree. They want him cursed because cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. And by the way, just for clarification's sake, the Jews' accusation of Jesus in this moment is that he made himself the son of God. He made himself the son of God. Can, can we be clear about something? Jesus didn't make himself anything, okay? Jesus is the son of God. They just don't believe it. They just don't. He is the son of God. And by the way, he is the son of God. What's John's purpose in writing this book? His stated purpose. Do you remember? I talked about this three years ago when we started our series in John. <laughs> Do y'all remember? John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. I could have written more, says John. There was a lot. But these are written. I wrote these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is the Son of God. John believes he's the Son of God. Caiaphas doesn't believe that. Pilate doesn't believe that. The Jewish believers don't believe that. But John wants you to believe that. That's why he wrote this book. And that by believing in Jesus as the Son of God, you might have eternal life. Do you have it? Do you have it, church? That's why John wrote this. Now at this point, hearing this Son of God language, Pilate gets a little weak in the knees. He gets even more fearful. Look at verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, meaning that he was already a little fearful about this situation. Now he's full-blown terrified. And remember Matthew's gospel, Pilate's wife had this fitful dream about Jesus. And she said to Pilate, don't have anything to do with that guy. Save yourself. Pilate was already uneasy about the situation. And now he finds out that Jesus might be a son of God. Panic. Now let's be clear about something. Pilate Pilate doesn't even have an inkling of who Jesus really is. He, 
He doesn't see Jesus as the Messiah or the son of God. According to old Testament prophecy, he's just worried superstitiously in a Roman way, in a Roman way that maybe, you know, Jesus is maybe Jesus is capable of divination. Maybe he's a, a witch or something. Maybe, maybe he's going to cast a spell on me. I'm going to be in trouble. Actually, there were some Jewish magicians at this time in the first century that were well known throughout the Roman empire for their casting of spells. And so, Pilate's worried, maybe this Jesus guy is going to haunt me in my sleep. Maybe this Jesus guy is going to cast a spell on me, curse my reign. Maybe he even thinks Jesus is kind of like a Jewish Hercules, so to speak, or, or Zeus and Hermes coming down in, in Jewish form. Is that why the Jews want him dead? So in a panic, here's Pilate, re-enters the headquarters, kind of, you know, inside, outside, inside, outside, Jews, Jesus, Jews, Jesus. It's like an errand boy. This is the most powerful man in Israel. So in a panic, he reenters his headquarters and he tries to act tough before Jesus. Look at verse nine. He entered the headquarters again. And he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Why didn't Jesus say something? Tell me if you've ever heard this before. Pearls before swine. You ever heard that? Jesus said that. And by the way, Jesus had already tried to explain to him earlier where he came from. My kingdom's not from this world. I came to bear witness to the truth. What is truth? Says Pilate. So Pilate, Jesus won't answer him. And Pilate's not happy about that. Verse 10. You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? There's irony in that statement too, because this whole episode is meant to show us just how limited Pilate's authority was. He, he's all bluster and the Jews have his number and he knows it. And look how Jesus responds to this. Jesus answered him. You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. What does that mean? It means two things. First of all, it means that God is sovereign over this whole sordid affair. Even though men are culpable for their actions, Jesus still attributes what's happening to God's plan of redemption. Jesus is being crucified. You need to reckon with this in your theology. Okay. Jesus is being crucified right here. And I know it's, it's, this is shocking. You might, well, who's doing it? Are the Romans doing it? Yeah. Are the Jews doing it? Yeah. Who's ultimately responsible for this? God, the father is ultimately responsible for this. You got to reckon with that. God, this is God's plan of redemption. And Jesus also says here, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that Pilate's sinless. He's not sinless. And neither are you or me, by the way. We're all sinners who sent Jesus to the cross. And yet Jesus says that he who delivered me over to you, meaning Caiaphas, this high priest who should have known better, he's guilty of a greater sin. Jesus is basically saying, you're just an ignorant man, Pilate. You know, you don't know any better. The high priest who delivered me over to you, he, he should have known better. 
By the way, there are different degrees of sin that might shock you. There are. And the Bible makes that clear. We're all guilty of sin. But not all sin is created equal. And there are different kinds of sin and there are different kinds of eternal punishment too, according to Jesus. As we are judged early in his ministry, Jesus said this, you can read this on the screen just to substantiate this a little bit more. Jesus said, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for them on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. According to Jesus, these cities would be judged more harshly, the Jewish cities. Why? Why would that be the case? Because they saw Jesus' miracles. They saw Jesus' work. They grew up with the scriptures. They had knowledge that that Tyre and Sidon and these pagan cities didn't have. That's just a little reminder to those of you in this room who grew, grew up like me in a Christian background with the scriptures and with the gospel being preached. You know, I try to tell Alistair all the time, just as a sober warning to him, to whom much is given, much will be expected. Son, do you realize the gift you've been given? You grew up in a church. You grew up with the scriptures. You grew up with Christ. Don't ever forget that. And I think Jesus uses similar logic here with Pilate. Pilate is guilty of sin. Yeah, we're all guilty of sin. But his sin isn't as heinous as the high priest or the Jews who are demanding Jesus' execution here. They're guilty of far more, something far worse because... And, and their judgment will be more severe in eternity. Their judgment will be more severe in eternity unless, unless they repent of their sins and embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Can even the worst of sinners be saved? Can even some of these priests putting putting Jesus to death be saved? According to Acts 6 verse 7, you can read this on the screen. According to Acts 6 verse 7, it actually happened. Just a few months after Jesus was crucified, Luke writes, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that awesome? No way, Pastor Tony. They can't be saved. They've done too much. I've done too much, Pastor Tony. I can't be saved. Yeah, you can. My brother-in-law, he's the worst sinner I've ever seen in my life. He can be saved. They can be saved. Your family members can be saved. Don't ever stop praying for that. Don't ever stop pursuing God for that. Until death or Christ comes home, there's always hope. There's always the possibility that some can be saved. Remember what William Cooper said many years ago about the thief that was crucified next to Jesus. Do y'all remember that from the hymn? The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. William Cooper was saying, I'm as vile as that thief next to Jesus. That thief that was crucified for being a murderer, an insurrectionist. I'm as vile as he is. If you can't sing that, if you can't say that with a clear conscience, you don't understand the gospel. 
that we are all vile sinners in need of a savior. And Jesus came and he died on the cross for us vile sinners that we are. Why'd you do this? Why would you suffer like this? You know what Jesus says? I did it for Tony Caffey, a sinner who needed it, who can't be saved any other way. I did it for you and you and you and you, Harvest Decatur. That's why I did this. One last point. Go ahead and write this down as number three. One final statement about Jesus' identity in the midst of suffering. Jesus suffered as the Passover lamb. Jesus suffered as the Passover lamb. After Jesus said what he said in verse 11, Pilate gets even more panicky. John tells us, verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, let me just be clear about what they're saying here. This is a bald-faced threat. This is blackmail is what they're doing. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. In other words, if you release this man, Pilate, we're going to tattle on you to your higher-ups in Rome. And you're going to be in big trouble because no friend of Caesar like yourself would allow this guy to go around and call himself a king. And remember what I said earlier about, about Pilate's foibles in, in Judea. Pilate was already on a short leash with Rome and Tiberius, the Caesar at this time was known to be uh, suspicious of people and capricious as a ruler. The last thing that Pilate wants to do is let word get back to Caesar that Maybe this guy who calls himself a king gets released. Why'd you let that guy out, Pilate? Well, you know, I thought he was innocent. Well, he's going around calling himself a king? Yeah, I didn't see him as a threat. Pilate's stuck here. He's stuck. And you know what? He doesn't have the courage or the intestinal fortitude to do the right thing and to release Jesus. So what does he do? He does what's expedient. And by the way, can I say this? This isn't in my notes. I'm going off script here. Be careful of that, which is expedient Christian in order to please the masses. Say Pilate didn't have the Holy spirit. You got the Holy spirit. You got no reason to bow to the whims of people who are doing the sinful popular thing. Pilate, He doesn't know any better. So verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. And now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. So just, just make a note of that harvest decatur. John's trying to show you something with that statement. It was Passover week in Jerusalem. It was Passover week. Plus it was Friday, which meant that the, the Sabbath was going to start in a few hours on Friday night. So not only was it Passover week, but it was Sabbath. A few hours before the Sabbath. It was what's called uh, the high Sabbath, the Sabbath on Passover week. So they got to get the show on the road, so to speak. They got to they get things moving. 
And it was about the sixth hour, says John. That's about noon by our reckoning. And so Pilate says again, sarcastically, behold your king. More sarcasm, more cynicism, more exasperation from this guy. This guy's your king. You worried about this guy? Here he is, your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Pilate, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance. He's sitting on the judge. I'm the judge. Shall I do this? I'm putting the ball in your court. What do you want me to do? You tell me what to do. You decide. I wash my hands of this. Shall I put to death your king? Shall I crucify your king? And here's what they say. The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. If this scene were a movie, this is where the, the timpani would drop. Boom. As the, as the climax, this is when the score of the movie would crescendo to its highest moment. Highest, most dramatic moment. Because this is the climax of the text. This is where the chief priests are exposed for their duplicity and their hypocrisy. And their statement borders on the, the absurd. We have no king but Caesar. Really? Really? That's what you want to go with right now? You know, there, there's a lot of self-condemnatory statements that these Jews have already made. made but this is, the, this is the most devastating by far. We have no king but Caesar. Craig Keener, he addresses their hypocrisy at this moment. You can read this on the screen. He writes, the Jewish people prayed daily for their royal Messiah. And one Jewish prayer that came in to be a part of Passover celebration, at least in later times, acknowledges that there's no king but God. So at Passover, they say there's no king but God. Now to get Jesus crucified, they say there's no king but Caesar. Can I, can I just state the obvious? These Jewish leaders have lost their way and their bloodthirstiness and their bloodlust to see Jesus executed. In this Passover season, they are not only disavowing their God, they're disavowing their Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, the lamb who came to take away the sin of the world. So finally, in verse 16, Pilate capitulates to their wishes. He knows he can't win this battle. So seated on that stone pavement, the Bema seat, as it was called, Pilate pronounces judgment on the king of kings. Pilate judges the eternal judge, Jesus Christ. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Are they really going to do this? Is Jesus really going to go through this? Is this really happening? The God of the universe in human form about to endure the most humiliating form of execution ever invented. 
And why would he allow it? Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for sins that I had done? He groaned upon the tree, amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. My God, why would you shed your blood so pure and undefiled to make a sinful one like me, your chosen, precious child? Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man, the creature's sin. Thus must I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Jesus, I don't understand completely why you would do this for me. You deserve better, Lord, and I deserve worse. We're not here this morning, Lord, to try to completely understand what you did with our finite minds. But we're here today, Lord, to say that we believe and that we love you and that we are thankful for your sacrifice for all. God, it's almost Good Friday. It's almost Easter. Remind us anew of the sacrifice you made for our sins. And increase our love for you, our commitment to you, our submission to you and your will, I pray. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.